can still recall the day when Jesus saved my soul, when his blessed Holy Spirit came and took control. I trusted in his precious blood, my sin to atone, and I started singing. Second Kings 19, verse number 30. I'm just going to read one verse for you. Just one verse, and I think we can pull a few good truths out from it this evening. I'll give you a moment to turn there, and then I'll read. Second Kings 19, verse number 30. And it says, And the remnant that is escaped of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit Upward, And so the title of my message tonight is Take Root, Bear Fruit. Pretty simple. Take Root, Bear Fruit. And so I'm going to open a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity I have to preach tonight. Uh, uh, none of us are here, I don't think, to play church. I hope nobody showed up tonight uh, just because they knew their friends were going to be here or just because they know they're supposed to. Uh, I hope each and every one of us came to get something from you this evening. Uh, use me uh, to deliver your word tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a, I like movies. Now, sometimes that's like a no, no, don't say that in church. But I think most people, they like movies or TV series or whatever it might be. And we all know that one type of person that they come in halfway into the movie or halfway into the TV program that's on, and that's just the most frustrating thing. Every family has one of those people in there. And they sit down. And they start, what do they do? Asking a ton of questions. They say, what's going on? Who's that? And it's like, why didn't you just, it's like, I'll give you it. I'll give you the movie. I'll give you the recording on my DVR. You can watch it. And so those people, they're really frustrating. And I'm the same way. I hate going into a story halfway in, walking up on two people having a conversation. And the whole time I'm sitting there guessing, wondering, hey, what's really going on? And sometimes I think, when people preach and they take a passage from the Bible, they just read the verse and they don't give you the whole context, the whole everything that's going on. And Heather often gets on to me uh, when she's telling a story. Uh, she'll be giving me the detail. She'll be giving, telling me what's going on, and I'll be asking for the little details, like what was their facial expression when they told you that, or this and that. She gets real irritated with me, and she's like, "You read into everything too much." But I just want to get the whole idea of what's going on. And so I'm just going to give you a little review about what's going on in this passage for those of you that might um, not know it too well. This is the story of Hezekiah, and I really got this message just, I, I took it from um, part of a series that I've been doing with the teenagers over the life of Hezekiah. Uh, but Hezekiah, he came to the throne at the age of 25. That's pretty young. His grandfather, and his great-grandfather, they were godly kings. They upheld the truth. Uh, they did what they were supposed to, right in the eyes of the Lord. And, but however, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was a wicked king. And during his rule, he set up idol worship. He took down the temple. They couldn't go to the temple and worship anymore. Um, he made alliances with other countries that obviously were not of like faith. And that might seem not like a big deal, but yet to God it was a very big deal that they would make an alliance with a country that was not of the same faith. They should have relied wholly upon God 
to protect them and keep them safe, but they made an alliance with the nation of Israel. And so um, when he comes to the throne at the age of 25, it was really a dark time for the country. You see, the people, by majority, they were all into idol worship. They weren't, they weren't worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob like, the, like their fathers and grandfathers had done in the past. So Hezekiah, what he did, he went, he cleansed the temple, he, re, he rebuilt it, he restored worship, he got rid of all the idols. And it's funny how we read those things in Scripture, and we just kind of read it like, okay, he removed the idols, like no big deal. Okay, but when you think about, man, that must have been some earth-shattering things for the citizens of that of Judah. They were pretty rooted in those things that they had been taught and that they had been doing for so long. We read it and we kind of think like, oh, okay, no big deal. He didn't get any lash back. I think it was probably worse than what we see in society today when the government says, no, 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 you can't do that. You know, I think it was a lot more serious. So, so he had a hard time doing this. Not only was he young, we get criticized a lot for that, um, but he um, also went and he took down these idols, restored the temple's worship, and he cut off ties with Assyria. And so 14 years later, a new king of Assyria comes along, and his name was Sennacherib. It's a pretty weird name. Um, better than Billy, but Sennacherib um, is Sennacherib. And anyway... Sennacherib, he comes and he threatens, I'm sorry, he does a sneak attack on Judah and he destroys and conquers some of the outer fence cities that were in Judah. And so he was kind of sending a message to Hezekiah and saying, hey, look, your father paid us tribute to keep you safe. And you know what? I want you to pay us. Otherwise, we're going to come in and we're going to destroy you. And sadly, Hezekiah, he gave into that temptation. He should have trusted God simply. And he should have said, you know what? I'm just going to rely upon God, and you know what? He'll protect us. He'll keep us safe. He has for thousands of years before, and he's going to now on. But yet he went, and he actually robbed the temple of money, went in and, and chiseled gold off from the doors of the temple in order to pay the king of Assyria. And just like the devil does, he double-crosses you. He double-crossed him. He double-crossed him, and Sennacherib said, you know what? Thanks for the money, but I'm still going to come in and beat you up anyways, and I'm going to conquer you, take you off into captivity. And so he makes that statement, and he sends somebody by another interesting name, Rabshakeh, better than Billy, and he sends, he sends Rabshakeh, and I guess he was like the spokesperson, something like that, for Assyria. And he goes in, and he starts trash-talking the country, starts trash-talking the people, saying that, man, he said things like, if I gave you guys 200 horses to ride, your men couldn't even ride them because they're not skilled enough. Basically, we're just going to come in and conquer you. They said things like, you know what? We've conquered, and actually archaeologists have discovered that they conquered 46 or so other countries that had gods. And basically, they said, you know what? We've conquered all these other cities and all these other countries and all these other gods, and we're going to conquer your god, none the same. Nonetheless, then we did all those other ones. And so they're in there really giving Hezekiah a hard time. And you know what? He's, he's sitting there. We, we know the end of the story. And so it's not really that big a deal to us. But man, imagine being during that time. Imagine being Hezekiah and saying, I mean, they don't treat kings of other countries too well once they take them into captivity. So man, he was looking down the barrel of a loaded gun right here. And so he cries out to God for help. Then Sennacherib comes and he delivers a letter to Hezekiah 
which he reads, and it says some terrible, really earth-shaking things for Hezekiah. And so Hezekiah does the right thing here. He goes and he literally spreads out. The Bible says he spread out the letter before the Lord. That's pretty awesome. He basically said, hey, I can't do this. I want you to see every little detail that's going on, every little thing. And you know what? He asked God to help him. The prophet Isaiah came, and he said what we just read about how in uh, the previous verses, he says that he's going to put, he hears the cry of Sennacherib, and he's going to put a bridle in his mouth and a ring in his nose. That's pretty amazing. Sennacherib thinking he's some big and mighty person because he was the superpower of that world, but yet God says, you know what, I've got it all under control. I've kind of almost let you dangle out here to see how you were going to do, but yet I've got it all under control. And then we come to our verse number 30, and he says, and the remnant that is escaped out of the house of Judah shall yet again take root downward and bear fruit upward. Taking root. Plants taking root is uh, some of the struggles that um, people that do gardens and, and yard work and that sort of thing have sometimes. Sometimes it can take, I read on the internet, it can take up to three years before a tree actually really gets in there and takes root to where even a strong storm isn't going to shake it um, or deroot it. Now, everybody, everybody wants the blessings of living right, but few people are really, are really, uh, you know, willing to put in the effort to do it. I think about working out, and I've tried it, you know, multiple times, just like everybody else. You know, you try it. I'm still a string bean, like always. And, uh, you know, I've tried it and tried it and tried it. And, and, you know, you go to the gym. I get my gym membership. You know, I go there and I pump some iron, you know, whatever I think I'm doing is going to work, you know. And then what, what do you do when you go home? No. You go home and you flex. That's what you do. You flex. That's what you do. You try to, you're like, yes, progress. And, you know, it really hasn't changed at all. Heather's, like, laughing at me. And she's like, no. She, you know, she tries to encourage me. But, uh, you know, you go and you think, oh, progress. And that's what you all do. You spend more time flexing than you actually do working out. And you think, oh, man, now, you know, I'm just going to get big, muscly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, it's going to happen real quick. But the truth about it is, is it doesn't happen quick. I love seeing these, a lot of these, uh, Stay-at-home moms, they like to do those, you know, whatever it is, the, the DVD workouts that you do. Uh, and, and you see them on there, and they'll be drinking like a protein shake, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and they're like, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to lose all this baby fat. I'm, you know, maybe I'll be hearing that shortly. I don't know. Maybe. And anyways, they say they're going to do it, and they got the big protein shakes. And you see it for like three weeks. I'm like, man, I do not want to see this on my news feed. I just, you know unfollow you for a little bit. But then when you go back and you finally see them later, they gave it all up. It never lasted because they wanted the results. Everybody wants the results, but not very many people are willing to put in the effort. And the sad thing is, is that's how it is spiritually. Anybody in here would say, yes, I want to be a good Christian. Anybody in here would say, yeah, sure, I want to be a faithful Bible reader. Or man, one of the things that I would really love, be a man of prayer. That'd be awesome. Man, I want to be a man of prayer. But yet, few people are, are, are not really willing to put in the work. They say, I want good kids. I want a great family. But yet, you don't spend any time with them. You don't take them to church. You do everything but spiritual things. And you think that it's all going to work out because it's tough. It's not easy. It's not just like some simple thing. And I'm going to be finding out that shortly. Um, 
And it's not, I don't think it's going to be some simple, easy thing. It's going to take a long time, and it's going to take a lot of effort to get the rewards of doing right. It doesn't happen quickly. It, I was talking to Miss Rudder, and I don't know if she's in here. Is Miss Rudder in here? No? Oh, hey, Miss Rudder. Remember I was talking to you about the uh, orange trees? She was talking about the orange trees and how there used to be orange trees all over this area before uh, you guys wanted to come down and build your pools and, and your uh, condos and shuffleboard courts and restaurants and all those things. But I guess there used to be a bunch of orange groves and fruit trees and things all over here until uh, the hurricane, I'm not sure which one it was, but came through and tore them all down. And I was talking to her and I said, man, why didn't they just rebuild them? Why didn't they just, I mean, I'm, I'm planting new ones. I'm, so, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, well, you know, it takes like five years or something like that for, I could be wrong, but five years for a tree to actually bear fruit. It's not something that just happens quick. I'm, I don't know anything about it. I think you just put it in the ground next year, yay, you get some fruit. But that's not the way it works. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort by the person that's taking care of it to water it, to make sure it's got the right nutrients it needs. And it doesn't happen overnight, sadly. So in our Christian life, that was all introduction. So in our Christian life, what should we take root in so that we can bear fruit? What should we take root in in our lives in order that we can bear fruit. Now, I think the things that I'm going to list here are exactly really the same things that these people in this time, the country of Judah, that they needed. I think these are the same things. The first one, first thing that we should take root in is we should take root in who God is. Now, if you know anything about the country of Israel, you know they had a problem with falling away from God, and they had a problem with wanting to be like other nations. That all started when they wanted a king. Man, they wanted a king. They just wanted to be like all the other nations. And the truth of the matter is that they should have been happy that they weren't like the other nations. That should have been it. They should have been overjoyed. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm chapter number 73. I actually want to go through this whole chapter fairly quickly, I believe. Psalm 73 This is one of the chapters in the Bible that just really sticks out to me. It's, it's become a personal help to me, something that I, I struggle with these same type of things that is talked about here, and I hope it will be a blessing to you. Now, um, Asaph is the writer of this psalm. If you know anything about Asaph, he was a the music leader, if you would, the chief musician um, of the country, and he was supposed to be a guy that's real spiritual, like our music leader, Jim Knott. And, but, however, we see in this passage that he kind of tripped up a little bit. The first verse says, uh, truly, he says in verse number one of uh, Psalm 73, he says, truly God is good. Hold up, before we keep going. Truly God is good. As we see as we move on in this passage, it seems to me like he says this like we say it sometimes. We just go around and we say, oh, God's good. Truly God's good. But, you know, we really don't mean it. A lot of times we say, oh, man, I love serving the Lord, but, you know, it's just kind of like we say it because we're supposed to say it, and we just say it out of habit or out of ritual, and I think that is kind of what he's getting at here, um, but we'll continue on. He says, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as, of, as are of a clean heart, but, this is it, but, as for me, 
My feet were almost gone. My steps had, nigh, had well nigh slipped. Basically, he was saying, hey, I'm getting tripped up. I'm losing my step. I'm, I'm about to fall here. I'm about to lose everything that I've been doing. Why is that? The next verse says, for I was envious of the foolish. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. How many of you have been there before? I'm there. Sometimes every day I'm there. You go out and you see how well they're doing. Wow, great jobs. I love my job, but they got great jobs too. They're well paid, got a great family, do all the fun things. And it's easy to get envious of the wicked and, and say, man, wow, I'm trying to do what's right, but they're, they're, doing, they're better off than I am. Anybody that's lived long in the Christian life has been there before. Let's continue on. Verse number four, he says, for there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. But their strength is firm. The bands that it referred to here was like ropes. It refers to ropes, something that's constraining you. Maybe some sort of pain that has overcome you that you just can't shake. Some sort of maybe a health problem that has come and you just can't get over. He's saying, man, these people, they're healthy. They got, they're, they're healthy, but man, he says, maybe he's saying me, but man, I'm trying to do what's right. and I'm, I'm sick. My family's sick. It's like, why... Why are the wicked people, God gives them children, they abort them, but yet there's good Christian people out there who can't get pregnant. It's like, that's where he's at. And, I, and you know, if you, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, why do the wicked prosper, and, I'm, and we're trying to do what's right, and it seems as if, man, where's the righteousness? Where's, where's God just going to come in, and, and I, I should be getting the blessings, and we should be getting the blessings. Why should they be doing it? They're living wickedly. Let's continue on. Verse number five, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. They don't have problems like Christians do, like people of God do. They're not, they're not struggling. Life's good for them. Verse number six, therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covered them as a garment. Pride compasseth them. As a chain, they're prideful. I was talking to a man the other day, and he was not a saved person, and life was going pretty good for him. Had a decent job, making decent money, lived for the weekend, had a good week, has had had a good weekend. And you know what? He was very prideful about the fact that he was just living life for himself. And that's how the wicked people are. They don't care about God. I said, man, I said, you understand that one day this is all going to be over. It's going to be over. It's going to be gone. All that stuff you're working for, all that fun you're working for is going to be gone, and we're going to see, you're going to see God face to face someday. And you know what he said? Ah, I'll face that when I get there. Ah, no big deal. And I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, man, how is it possible for someone to be that prideful about their way they're living. But hey, the Bible's true. That's exactly how they are. They don't have a care in the world about tomorrow. They're just living for today. Verse number seven. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. They got more than they could want. They got everything they need. Verse eight through 12, I'll read it quickly. It says, they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. 
Therefore his people returned hither, and waters of a full cup wrung out unto them. And they say, how doth God know? And there is knowledge in the Most High. Behold, these are ungodly. These are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. That's one of the things, man. You feel like you're doing everything that's right. You got your money maybe invested in something that's good. And somehow the wicked guy that lives next door to you, man, his stocks are just going up and up and up. And the things he's got in his driveway, they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He's moving out, going to a bigger house down on the beach. Man, they're, they're increasing in riches. And for Asaph, this was a real struggle for him. He was literally, when he's saying his feet were almost gone, he was about to slip. Basically, he was saying, hey, I'm almost falling out of the ministry here because I see their prosperity, if prosperity and I'm jealous and I'm envious of what they have. Now, verse number 17, I love this verse. Verse number 17. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Once he got where God was, all that kind of faded off. Once he realized who God was and really how valuable God was to him, hey, all those other things fell off. He wasn't jealous anymore that the wicked were healthy. He didn't care about that. He didn't care if he was sick. He wasn't jealous that they were troubled, that, that, that they didn't have any problems. He wasn't jealous that they were financially stable and he's living paycheck to paycheck. He wasn't jealous that they have a lot of money in the bank and I'm just trying to make it every, every two weeks off my social security. He wasn't worried about any of that. He wasn't, he wasn't jealous that they had more than their hearts could wish. He wasn't jealous that they could live any, it seemed like, live any way they wanted to live without any sort of consequence whatsoever because the truth is, is because he realized that all that stuff isn't, wasn't really worth anything compared to what he had in God because he had a God in heaven who loved him, cared for him, supplied his every need, even though it maybe not have been exactly every, everything that he ever wanted. But wow, he had a God in heaven that cared for him and loved him. And as soon as he realized that, all those other things didn't seem to matter anymore. And he got his confidence back. He got, his pep, in his, he got pep in his step. He got securely mounted. His feet weren't slipping anymore. Hey, he remembered, he remembers that, hey, God pulled him up out of a miry pit and set his feet upon a rock. And that's the same for us today. God's good. Once we realize who God is, you know what? All those other things seem to kind of fade away. We got to get rooted in who God is. The other day at nursing home, I came across an illustration of a um, a, a fish, and the, the story goes like this. If you take a fish and you put it up on a beach and you go to it and you see it there and it's gasping for breath, you know, it only lasts a few minutes, it's gasping for breath, its, it's scales are getting all dry and flaky because of the heat, and you were to take and you were to take a big, big old wad of cash, $100 bills, and you were to start throwing on that fish, what would happen? Nothing. He wouldn't be happy. He wouldn't be satisfied. If you went and you built him a nice sand castle, put him up in a nice little lazy boy sand, lazy boy in there, got him sitting real nice and real good, would he be happy? Absolutely not. The only thing 
that would make him happy was getting him back in his element, which would be the water. And for the Christian, when this world tries to come along and throw a few dollar bills at us, or they say, hey, you got to have this nice house. You got to have it. You got to have this new car. You just got, I mean, hey, it's not even worth living if you don't have this, this car. Or hey, hey, if, if we go out on the weekend and we go, we go traveling all across the world, those things really just shouldn't even appease the Christian because we've got something that is, should be way more precious to us than all those other things. Do you want to bear fruit in your life? Number one was take root in who God is. The second one is uh, take root in God's word. Take root in God's word. Now, I've got listed here 10, um, 10 excuses people often use not to read the Bible. 10 excuses people often use not to read the Bible. The first one is this, number 10. It says, I don't have time. That's probably... The, sorry, guys, back there. Jeez. Oh, well, you'll be all right. Um, number 10 was, I don't have time. That's probably the biggest excuse that most people have. I don't have time. I thought it was interesting what Pastor, he's told me this a few times and from the pulpit a few times about how the stay-at-home stay moms are usually the ones that struggle with reading their Bible more than anybody else because they've got all the time in the world. Usually what it is is, is the people that, not that they're not busy, I'm not getting at that, but usually it's the people that are busy going, 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 are out of the house, are, are running errands all the time and doing this sort of thing. They're usually the ones that read their Bible. That's from his experience of what he said. And it, it's just interesting. Usually busy people stay busy. Object in, objects in motion tend to stay in motion. Objects that are still, hey, they tend to be still. But the truth is, the truth about it is, is we... Make time for what is important to us. Yesterday, I wanted to go fishing. So you know what? It was important to me, and I wanted to go fishing. So you know what? Me and a couple of the, the guys, we took off, and we went bass fishing. But it was important to me, and I was going to make it happen, do or die. It was going to happen. And that's what we did. We do make time for what is important to us. Number nine is I don't know where to start. I think that's just like a lame excuse. I don't think that's a really that's just an excuse that people have. Um, get a good Bible reading plan. There's plenty of them out there. It's super easy to do. Number eight is reading makes me sleepy. That's one of the excuses. Reading makes me sleepy, which that's probably true. But then read in the morning. Number seven is the Bible is too confusing. It can be, but it doesn't actually always have to be. There's tons of help. There's tons of tools out there. If you don't know a word, for goodness sakes, look it up in a dictionary. We got everything we possibly could need to look up anything on our phones. I can go and type in, get the Greek text right on my phone whenever I want. It's just so easy. There should be no excuses for that. Number six is I don't get anything out of it. Wow, that's one. Number five is there are many contradictions in the Bible. Now, these aren't ones that I came up with. I actually found these. and so, But that's true. That's what a lot of people say. There are many contradictions in the Bible. Number four, is the Bible's boring? The Bible is boring. Now, there are challenging parts. Leviticus, yeah, it can get tough. It can get tough in there. 
but there are very exciting parts of the Bible as well. And really, hey, when we go back to the first part and start really realizing who God is and, whoa, what he can do for us and how he can help us, hey, that gets me a little excited. Number three is I might have to change. Yeah, that's probably true. But it'll be for the better. I hate, sometimes I get up usually, for those of you that care about my routine in the morning, usually, usually I will take a shower when I get up. Occasionally at night I'll take one and then I'll just go up throughout my day. And if I do take one at night, sometimes, despite my hair, the way you think I do my hair, I look in the mirror. Sometimes I just don't pay a whole lot of attention and I just go on throughout my day. And you know what? If I had a big old nasty blackhead right on my nose, right on the end of my nose, I would really hope that one of you guys would tell me. I'm talking big like a pencil head lead, you know, really big, right? Hey, I hope somebody would tell me. I hope I wouldn't go around looking dumb all day long because of that. And the same thing, some people are content with going through life, not living the way they're supposed to, all because they don't want to look in the mirror. Because this is going to show you, hey, where your mistakes is. This is going to show you, hey, this in your life isn't right. You need to fix this. Oh, keep this. Change this. It's pretty simple. And as long as we do what it says, it's going to keep us in good stead. But some of us, just like some of you, oh, just like, you know, sometimes we miss out on looking in the mirror in the morning. Some of us, we forget to get in the word in the morning. And you know what? It always comes back to bite you. Um, number two is I forget or get distracted. Now, that's true. That's true. That does happen. Forget to read it. Now, if you set a time every day in the morning, afternoon, on your lunch break, whenever, you know what? You won't forget as much. If you just say, hey, I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow, it doesn't happen. I've been there. I've tried it a thousand times, and I've failed a thousand times. You've got to set a time that you can do it. And number one, this is their number one. It says, I'm not smart enough. Especially sometimes with the King James Bible, some people get a little distracted. Some people get a little uh, uh, messed up with some of the words. But like I said, it's so easy. We can easily look, look up a word, look up whatever, and, and have it. So that's no excuse. Um, I think you all are, are smart enough. If you can't read very well, if you got cataracts, like I learned about, if you got cataracts, get the MP3 version. Get, they got DVDs for your TV. There's a lady at nursing home that Pastor Moon gave her a DVD of the Bible. And she told me a couple weeks, do you tell Pastor Moon that I really appreciate him giving me that Bible on DVD? Because she was still 90-something years old, but she still wanted to get something from God's Word. Uh, a while back, a couple months ago, actually. No, maybe it, was a couple, maybe it was last year. I think it was last year. I showed a video to the teens. They like watching videos. And I showed them a video of these Chinese people who, if you know anything about China, you know that it is a communist country and there's not really a freedom of religion there. Christianity, you cannot really be a Christian there. You cannot worship. You can't have church meetings. You can't have a Bible there. And so there's this one video on YouTube. You can look it up after the service if you, if you want. Someone brings in a big old suitcase, one of them rolling suitcases in, they bring it in into this room, set it down in the middle of the floor, and they unzip it, and it is packed full of those cheap, really cheap Bibles 
that you can get like at the dollar store, and it's packed full of those. And as soon as a little glimpse of light, and they could get a little glimpse inside of it, they rushed. They rushed that that suitcase, and I mean, it was just, you couldn't even see the suitcase. There were so many people tripping over, fighting each other, pulling, at that moment in time, they weren't Christian. You know, they were ripping their buddies out of the way just so they could get a Bible. And they pick it up, and they get it, and you see them walking away. They're crying, and they're walking away, and they're kissing it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. That hurts. That hurts me. It hurts that I have two at home, three in the office, one I leave in my car, and sometimes I don't even take the time to open it and read it. And they're over there fighting for it, like you put a piece of meat in the Amazon River and those piranhas come and just tear it up. Just the hunger they had because they hadn't had God's word. And you know what? We've got it so much that we could take it or leave it. It's pretty amazing. Pretty sad too. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. If we really believe this is God's word, why don't we get into it? If we don't believe it's God's word, what are we doing here? I got, hey, I could do other things on a Sunday night. If this is truly God's word, let's get into it. Hebrews 4.12, these are verses that many of the kids memorize in Awana. For, uh, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. JFK um, Jr., he, many of you know, he, uh, in 1999, he, along with his wife and his sister-in-law, took off from New Jersey and they were going to fly to Martha's, Martha's Vineyard. And when... JFK Jr., he had just had his pilot's license, whatever you want to call it, for a little certificate for a little while, and so he was not supposed to drive by just using the instruments that were on uh, the panel of the airplane. He had to be able to see at least five miles out because he was still new. He was still a beginner. He couldn't just use, he couldn't just rely on what the plane was telling him. He had to actually be able to see where he was going. And so he takes off. This was at night. It wasn't, it wasn't a rough night by any means. It was pretty clear. It was dark, however. And so he took off, and he shouldn't have. He started flying off, and it wasn't long before he looked down and saw what the instrument panel told him to do and told him where he was. And just like a rookie, he didn't believe what it said. He didn't follow it. Not long after that, they ended up in the Atlantic Ocean, crashed. All three of them died, all simply because he didn't follow the instructions. I'm sorry about this. All, all because he didn't follow the instructions that were right there in front of him. And man, we've got instructions right in front of us every day, day after day. And all we got to do is say, you know what? I see what it says. Let me obey it. But in our, in our blindness, sometimes we go through life thinking, hey, I know better. I know, how to do, I know how to do it, thinking that we know more than God knows, thinking that we know better than God knows. People have been trying to do that for thousands of years, and it's failed every time, but somehow in our human nature, we keep trying to do it for ourselves. Follow the instruments that God has given us, hey, and we'll get successfully to our destination every single time. Spurgeon said, I got a quote here, 
It's a little bit of a lengthy, kind of a lengthy one, but it, it's good. It's very good. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, he says, Let us stop and consider the merciful nature of God in having written us a Bible at all. Ah, he might have le left us without uh, to grope in our dark way as blind men seek the wall. He might have suffered us to wander uh, on with a star of reason as our only guide. The light of creation is a bright light. God may have seen the stars. Uh, his name is written, uh, glit, uh, glit letters on the brow of, of night. You may discover his glory in the ocean waves, yea, in the trees of the field. But it is better to read his glory in two books rather than in one. You will find it here more clearly revealed, for he has written this book himself, and he has given you uh, the key to understand it, if you have the Holy Spirit. Ah, Beloved, let us thank God for the Bible. Let us love it. Let us count it more precious than much fine gold. I'm going to skip down and it says, uh, it says, hey, some of you here. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, here it is. It says, if this be the word of God, what will become of some of you that have not read it for the last month? Month, sir? I have not read it for this year. Ah, there are some of you that have not read it at all. Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket-bound volume, um, neatly bound. They put it in a white pocket, pocket handkerchief around it and carry it to the places of worship. When they get home, they lay it up in a drawer till next Sunday morning. Then it comes out again for a little bit of treat and goes to chapel. That is all the poor Bible gets in the way of airing. That is your style of enter entertaining this heavenly messenger. There is dust on enough of some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. There are some of you that have not turned over your Bibles for a long, long, long while. And what think of you? I tell you blunt words, but true words. What will God say at last when you shall come before him? He shall say, did you read my Bible? No. I wrote you a letter of mercy. Did you read it? No. Rebel, I have sent thee a letter inviting thee to me. Didst thou ever read it? Lord, I never broke the seal. I kept it shut up. Wretch, God says, then thou deservest hell. If I sent thee a loving epistle, and thou wouldest not even break the seal, what shall I do unto thee? Oh, let it not be so of you. Be Bible readers, be Bible searchers. It's going to be a shame someday when we look God face to face and we say, oh, I never read it. I never read it cover to cover. I didn't read it like I should. Some of us, we know more about the gossip in Hollywood and we know what it says in the pages of Scripture. We know more about Angelina and Brad Pitt, and if they got a divorce, if they didn't, if they got remarried, if they didn't, than what the Bible says. We want to know more about what accessory ladies can go with our outfit that's just going to put it all together. And we spend time searching and searching for the perfect thing that's going to make it look all right, or the perfect thing that's going to get rid of all your wrinkles. Or, or uh, uh, some guys, they're, they're on... They're on they're always searching to, you know, find out that new thing for their hobby. But how about we just get in God's word and try to search for a little nugget of truth? Just like we search for all those other little things that we try to, that try to help our hobbies and the things that we like. A lot of us, we treat the Bible like a trinket. Back in Little Rock, it's a uh, very urban, I should say an urban society, and the people there, they treat the Bible like it's a good luck charm. They leave it in their car. They say, oh, like, this is going to bring them good luck. Like, if they get stopped by the police or something, you know, that it's going to somehow have magic powers and it's just going to, like, bless their life. Like, it's like some 
lucky rabbit foot or something. But the truth is, it's not some lucky rabbit foot. You've got to read it and do what it says. It's as simple as that. The third thing that we should take root in is take root in the house of God. Take root in the house of God. Now, when I went to my old church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where I, uh, 7th grade to 12th grade, I was there, our church building was a big octagon building. And it was the ugliest building you've probably ever seen in your life, an octagon, just imagine it. And on the top, it was a flat roof. And every so often, like any Baptist churches, you know, you get leaks in them. No matter what you do, you get a leak in it. And so they'd go up there and try to tar the whole thing. And they were up there, the assistant pastor and the pastor, one time they were up there, and there was a tree that had gotten into, dug into that dark tar and dug into the cracks that were in the roof. And they went to try to pull that thing out, and they did everything that they could to yank that, that tree, that little oak tree, out of the top of the roof, and they couldn't yank it out. They had to literally go out in there and cut it out. I think that's how most people should treat the house of God. It shouldn't be something like you're just some little easy weed. Some, one little bad thing happens and you get pulled up and you're out the door off to the next place. Man, we should be grounded. We should be rooted in the church. That any little thing is not just going to blow us out of here. People aren't perfect. The staff isn't perfect. I'm not perfect. Pastor Lytel's not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. But don't let any little tiny thing blow you out of here because one person offended you. Why go to church? Why go to church? Jesus gave himself for the church. We all know this verse, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. How important is church to you? Many of you don't know this. I always say I'm from Arkansas because it's true. And I just don't feel like explaining this story to you. But I'm actually, I was born in Connecticut. And so some people say, you're from Arkansas, you don't have an accent. You don't sound like a hillbilly. Well, that's because I moved there. When I was in uh, sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, somewhere around there, and I was there ever since. Now, many people often ask, why'd you move there? Why did you move there? Did your dad get a job transfer? Nope, he didn't get a job transfer. My dad, he was a painter for a long time, painted houses, painting new developments that came about. And he had been going through some hard times with some of his friends that were there, bringing him down all the time. And so he wanted to get out of the area just so he wouldn't be under that peer pressure anymore that, that had uh, overtaken him so, so many times. And so we decided that we're going to move at least a few hours away. Now, there was a man from Amazing Grace Missions. I think his name was Ron Olson was his name. He traveled out and did the fair ministries. And he just randomly one day said to my dad, he said, I know of a good church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so my dad flew down there, bought a house, for no reason, bought a house, and we, two weeks later, got our whole family to move down there. Not because he had some great job opportunity, not because it was an awesome place to live. It was okay. Not because it was great, not because the economy was great. It was simply because he knew that there was a good church. He wasn't necessarily a very spiritual man as I would, but he knew the importance of the church. He knew how important it was, and he wanted to get his family underneath it. Number two, it's a fellowship with other believers. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Isn't it such a breath of fresh air when you go spend all week out in the world and you get to come to church and talk to believers? 
you know what, sometimes I forget about what that's like until I go on vacation. Because I'm here all the time. And it's not perfect here, but I don't get exposed to some of the things that you guys get exposed to out in the workforce every day. But I know sometimes when I take my vacation, I start seeing what's going on and how people are day after day. And I'm glad when I can come back and fellowship with believers that are going to help me, encourage me. That's, num- that's why the church is important. Number three is it's a place that we can serve. It's a place we can serve. There was a church member actually here. Uh, I'm not going to give a name by any means. It was actually when I first got here, and pastor, it was funny. They always just like to give me a hard time. I don't know why. They like to give me a hard time, and so they sent me a contact, and pastor says, oh, this person, they haven't been around in a while. I want you to call them. Not knowing that it was going to be like a heated phone call on the other end, he set me up for that one and laughed about it later, and And it turns out that the person, they were all upset because they hadn't come to church in eight weeks and nobody came to visit them. And you say, oh, that's such a terrible thing. That's so terrible. No one from the church would go visit them. Now, yes, could we probably, you know, tweak our system and go visit them? Yes. But the truth of the matter is we didn't even know she wasn't here because she didn't do anything at all. You know what? If Marilyn Rose didn't answer her phone for a week, we'd probably think she was dead. We wouldn't know. We would know she's gone. We would know that she is gone. Now, I'm not saying that to brag on her, but I'm just saying, wow, when you are so involved in something and you're so committed to the church, when you're not here, people call and say, hey, where are you at? Is everything all right? Where are you at? Are are you okay? Because they're so involved, but the people, man, if you don't do anything around here, no offense, but you probably aren't going to get a visit because no one's going to really realize that you're not here, that you're missing. How important is church to you? A lot of people, they get, I get cracked up about these, uh, uh, they get season tickets, they get these big, you know, vacations and these things that they're gone every weekend on church. My whole idea about that is if you're not willing to take a day off of work, to go on vacation, to go wherever you want to go. But every, you know, two times every month during the summer, you want to go on vacation to wherever. If you're not willing to take off a day of work, don't take, don't take off a day from God's house. Does that make sense? People say, oh, I can't live if I, don't go to, if, I, if I don't go to work, but I still want to spend time with my kids. You know what? My family, I'm not saying this for you to feel sorry for me whatsoever, but my family, we didn't have a ton of money. We were pretty poor most of the time. We never went... I don't think any time in my childhood we went on a vacation, and maybe one time I think we went to Niagara Falls. But besides that, we didn't go on vacation because we just didn't have the money. But you know what? I don't look back at my childhood and say, oh, you know what? I can't believe my mom and dad didn't take me on vacation. I can't believe that. But I can remember every time they said, get your butt in the car, we're going to church. I can remember that. And you know what? Today... I am so thankful that they made me do that. I would trade that over the most awesome vacation you could possibly ever give me because it was eternal. What we were doing on Sunday, going to church and worshiping God and getting in the book, hey, that's what was really important. It's not all this other stuff that we think, oh, this is just family time and this is for us. And you know what? I just need a break. Man, no, get in church. That's what really is important. And that's what really is going to matter when it is all said and done. 
Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Maybe you're here tonight in closing. Maybe you're here tonight, and you say, I don't have any fruit. I can't tell any fruit that I got in my life. Why don't you get rooted in some of these things of God? Maybe you're here tonight, and you say, I've lived my whole life, and I don't think I've got any fruit for God. The soil that my roots are down in, it's dry, it's crusty. No water's been through it in a long time. Why don't you get a plant transplanted and get put into some nice, moist, miracle grow soil that's just going to make you grow and it's going to make you thrive. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to come overnight, but it'll be far more worth it than staying where you're at. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, tonight. Thank you for your word. I pray that if you worked in uh, anyone's heart tonight, that they would respond. Let's stand for an invitation. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you can contact us at gospelbaptistchurch.com for our website. Or go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church, Bonita Springs, Florida. Or call the office at 239-947-1285. Thank you. God bless.